A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means that adult language is probably going to be present, just so you know. Hey there, you're listening to A Tiny Revolution, a podcast about ordinary people living revolutionary lives. I'm Kevin Garcia, welcome to episode 69, and I could make a joke about 69, bruh, but I'm not going to because I'm an adult, and adults don't do things like that, right? (laughs) Um, But you're already making the joke inside your head already, so you're welcome for just liberating you to do the thing you already wanted to do. In two ways, I just have one announcement before I start into the this week's podcast interview sort of deal. I'm going to be doing a panel at the Reformation Project in Orlando, Florida. That's going to be in the middle of October. So if you're interested in coming and getting some stellar world-class training from some amazing uh, biblical scholars, activists, theologians, and meeting some of the best people on the planet, you can go to reformationproject.org and register, get your tickets, all that good stuff. All the information is going to be in the description or the show notes or whatever they're called. And you can see me in Orlando. Matthias Roberts is going to be there. Um, Kathy Baldock, who is my guest today, is going to be there. Candace Zubernat, uh, Britt Barron. Um, literally all the people that you've heard on this podcast are probably going to be there. So if you want to rub elbows with some of your new faves, um, come on now to Orlando. We're going to have a fun time. So... Um, other things about me right now, um, make sure you're following me across social media at the Kevin Garcia and go to my blog and subscribe to my newsletter so that you don't ever miss anything that's going on. That's at thekevingarcia.com. And um, over on my YouTube channel, just some exciting developments. I'm going to start unpacking sex and sexual ethics and things around that, which is thrilling, but also like really terrifying because of the. <laughs> I put out a video last week. Um, where I was answering some questions that came in from Instagram. And I've already gotten some opinions from people about what I'm doing with my body. And I'm telling you what, y'all, we are in for a ride. I've got to start reinstituting my rule of don't read the comments, I think. Well, anyways, um, enough about that. If you want to, if you want that, you can go to youtube.com slash hello, I'm Kev in. That's Kevin without the I. And subscribe to me over there because there's some cool, fun things happening. Um, going on with today, today I'm talking with the fantastic Kathy Baldock. Kathy is a straight evangelical Christian, author of Walking the Bridgeless Canyon, a speaker and educator working to bridge the gap between the church and the LGBTQ community. She's on the board of the Reformation Project, travels frequently, uh, presenting on social, political, and religious intersections of faith and sexuality, both in ancient context and in more recent American history. She is a fountain of knowledge, people, which you're honestly going to hear in this conversation. And if you've never watched her presentation, which is called Untangling the Mess, it's on YouTube. It's on the Reformation Project's channel. Go look it up. I swear to you, it is just amazing. Like, amazing how like she just lines it all up in a way that makes sense and is clear. And you can actually see where where how we got where we did and why we believe what we do based off of, again, not just religious convictions, but social and political ideologies as well. Um, In addition to being an amazing speaker and educator, I count Kathy as a friend of mine. She is tender and loving and a damn fun time on top of all that. So in this conversation, Kathy talks to me about some of her latest research about how the word homosexual was translated into our modern Bibles, and it is fascinating. 
to put it very, very shortly, it's fascinating. And I barely had time to talk in this conversation because she was sharing so much, which is rare for me, I know, because I'm usually the one, I don't want to say dominating a conversation, but I do have a lot to say. Um, but yeah, so grab yourself a cup of coffee, a notepad, and a pen, because hold, hold on to your butts, y'all, because you are going to want to take notes on this one. It's a whirlwind of a conversation, and you're going to love it so much. So here's my conversation with my friend, Kathy Baldock. say I am an evangelical Christian. Um, I'm a mother of two straight children and for the cause of justice for the last over a decade, actually since very early 2007, I've been working to understand as a straight evangelical person, I've been working to understand how I can best communicate affirming theology to people that may not be familiar or may be very uncomfortable or mildly uncomfortable with the topic. I see myself now as a researcher, an educator, a presenter, a speaker, a writer. I love two things, relationship and education, and I'm really focused on those things. That's dope. Um, And also, I am super thankful for your work and the things that you've done Um, and just like the fierce advocate you are. Um, Because I think you and I... We met at like the Atlanta TRP conference, maybe. Yes. Yes. We got to spend some time there together, laying on that back table together, chatting away. That's that's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. (laughs) My gosh. It's only been like going on, I guess, three, going on three years for me since that summer. And so, so much has changed, at least for me in the past three years. Um, um, I wonder is like, as far as you looking at the world, um, like, what's your experience been in the past three years? Has I, I feel like a lot has changed in the past three years as far as, like, the landscape of queer Christians being able to be more visible mm-hmm. um, and just queer people in general. But I wonder, like, since you've been doing this work for around a decade, what are some differences that you've seen? Well, it's really interesting that maybe a decade ago, the, the voices that were being heard were the louder voices, um, I don't really want to say angry because that then puts some kind of um, assessment on where the voices are coming from. But there were certainly more loud and aggressive voices of saying, you know, listen to me, listen to me. Um, I don't care what you're saying. Listen to me. And that started to change um, maybe about six or seven years ago when people from an affirming theology point of view um, were becoming more educated and had really good resources to deal with and were becoming more secure in what they believed. And when you're more secure in what you believe, it's easier to be Mm -hmm. kind and gracious. Yeah. So uh, voices started coming into the picture that were more along the lines of, yeah, I get where you're coming from. I get why you have a traditional point of view, but there are other ways to look at this. Would you be willing to have a conversation? Would you be willing to listen? So I saw the tone of the conversation really radically change. And I really attribute it very much to Justin Lee and to Matthew, both Mm -hmm. of whom are friends of mine. 
I've had a very long relationship with Justin. I've known, he was actually the first gay Christian I ever met. Hmm. When I went to the GCN conference in 2007, I was the first straight ally that went. And I went there because I had a phone conversation with Justin after reading uh, an article in the New York Times about GCN. So he was the first gay Christian I met. Not a bad one, right? Yeah. Then, that's, um, a, that's a pretty good introduction not, into the community, that, right? Not a bad one. And um, and then being in that room with about 200 LGB, I'm not going to say T, I don't think there were any T Christians there at the time. Um, it, it totally changed what my heart was feeling. My head didn't catch up. My head didn't catch up for probably, I would say, four or five more years even. Mm. And, um, and then Matthew, when Matthew first released his video, he sent me a link on YouTube, which I missed. And then somebody else sent me a link when his video had less than 200 views. And so immediately I contacted Matthew on YouTube and we became friends at the very beginning of his journey. And so I've known Matthew since there was no reformation project. Actually, I was the first member of his board. Mm-hmm. Still am. And um, so I like being surrounded by these educated voices. I include in that Jim Brownson, of course, um, the people that are writing from a really compassionate, uh, relational, educated point of view. It's really nice to be surrounded by them to um, not that I need to be monitored, but I feel like I'm in a group of people that have certain expectations of quality conversation and interactions and academics. And that wasn't around 10 years ago at this level. I don't mean right. to say that the people before this weren't doing great work, but it's just like, I mean, my goodness, they say that Isaac Newton discovered um, gravity. It does not mean that gravity did not exist before him, right? He mm-hmm. started conversations about it. He gave it a word. Um, and so it's, it's changed. And then the other really, really big change I've seen, and I don't think this is more than five years old, are the parents. Before mm. I could have expected, and I do use the word expected intentionally, that when a parent of faith and the more entrenched in the faith, the more this would be true. A parent of faith, when they found out their child was not heterosexual, not cisgender, um, they would side with their belief system more often than trying to fight for the reality, authenticity of their child and educate themselves. Well, that's all changed too. And so when you have parents in like every denomination, every church pew in the country fighting from a grass level root, it's going to change things. They may leave their churches, but at least they're a witness in their own, sometimes tiny community saying, I am here and I'm going to love my child. So it has changed. Mm-hmm. The landscape has changed. And there are excellent and ever increasing resources out there of affirming theology. And right. they're solid. They're really solid. I mean, I care about, I'm one of those footnote readers, endnote readers, and I have seen the quality of research and resources in this just explode and become full of integrity. I just love it. Yeah. Mm. Yes. And I think I'm also like very grateful to that kind of 
very relational approach to this whole conversation because that's how I came from not being affirming of myself to an affirming position. It was because of work like Matthew's book and uh, Bible Gender Sexuality by Jim Brownson. Um, Because those things, because I was somebody who like, I needed to understand like the theological aspects of how this whole thing worked before I jumped into anything else. Because, uh, you know, when you're under the threat of hell, it kind of scares you shitless a little bit. And you want to make sure you're getting it right. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, it's just, um, it, it's really interesting. The work I've been doing just even just the last two days, because I, I'm not sure people read more than I do. I certainly read a lot. And yeah, you, thought, you really do. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, like Kathy does, she reads all the really shitty, I do. Uh, bad theology books around sexuality and gender and reviews them so that we don't have to do it. Yeah. I don't um, review them, Kevin. I epic review. Oh, seriously, like goes in, marks them up for filth, and then says like, hey, like, this is where your theology is off. And also, maybe you should listen to these voices. Like, what an idea, what a concept. So, but what I've been working on the last uh, two days has, so overall, the question I'm asking for the next book, the research I've been doing is, Mm -hmm. as we have understood better about human sexuality, and that journey started in 1870, um, the the understanding about human sexuality and how people operate in sex, there were radical changes between 1870 and 1930, radical changes of hmm. understanding of women's roles, men's roles. Um, so I slow that process down so that people can fully understand it more fully than in the first book. The first book I had to, I was just trying to connect the high points of how we got here. Now I'm slowing it down because I'm asking, as we understood better about human sexuality, did we do better with the interpretation, the translation of Bible verses associated with same-sex behavior? So we know that the first time the word homosexual appeared in any Mm -hmm. translation, any language, any Bible, was in the 1946 New Testament version um, of the Revised Standard Version. So the question was that I investigated with Ed Oxford. We went back to Yale University last September, spent five days in the archives answering the, just a simple question. Why did the translation team translate the word arsenikoite in Greek to the word English word homosexual? And so we were digging in and trying to find that. And the conclusion, which will be the beginning of the book, was the translation team had no idea. The truth is, it wasn't just Mm. what people thought in 1946, Kevin. They actually, because the notes I could find, they actually did the translation work on 1 Corinthians between 1935 and 1937. Mm. Then you have to say, what did the culture, what did medical people, what did pastors, what did theologians, what did all these different groups, even the military, that becomes a very important topic too, what did these people think was happening when someone of the same sex was romantic, sexually, emotionally attracted to someone of the same sex? Mm-hmm. So you have to start with that as the foundation so that you can understand the work the translation team did. And I can tell you from what I found, what Ed and I found in a, at least 60,000 sheets of paper, Wow, we found 
two exchanges, one on a size of a postcard with a response with the size of maybe two thirds of a sheet of paper. Uh, someone saying there's someone in my congregation who has homosexuality in their family. I just have a simple question. Why did you translate our Senecoite to homosexual in first Corinthians? And you didn't translate our Senecoite to homosexual in, in first Timothy. That's a simple question. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he responded, uh, the head of the translation team, Luther Weigel, who was the Dean of Yale university. That's why the notes are there responded. But the more significant response came to a seminarian who asked the question in a very gracious, very humble, and very theologically, relationally sound way. It was a shocker to come across that letter because it was almost as if someone mm -hmm. from today almost got it and challenged him on his translation. And his response was not theologically sound. It was not as theological a response, certainly as Mr. Gagnon would now give us, mm. but it was a mediocre response that proved the point that I went there to prove, which was the translation team did that translation out of their ideology and out of cultural bias and it's provable. So, so then the question becomes, as we did subsequent translations, of course, we grew in understanding of what human sexuality is. The understanding was rather dreadful until the middle of the 70s. It started to become a bit more informed. Right. There were stages of uh, absolute ignorance. And at, but the question still becomes, as the teams looked at those passages... Did they also revisit assumptions on human sexuality? Certainly that the RSV had um, made, assumed. And the answer was not just no, it was hell no. <laughs> hell no. Yeah. So the next work we, we did was we went to Wheaton in uh, last month in June. And we dug into the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, which came out in 1978. So we dug into those 61 boxes, don't have an estimate of how number, how many sheets of paper, but a lot. Mm -hmm. um, those 61 is like those archival moving boxes. So Ooh, those are huge and gross and nasty. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, let's just open a cigar box and find some <laughs> papers in there. No, it was 61 boxes of notes. What I can mm. tell you is we were only the third people that had asked for the NIV notes in the archives history there. Wow. We were the first people that asked for the full set of notes at the Yale archives, the first people. So Whoa. As, a, as a person that's intensely curious, I say, why has nobody asked this question before and then done the work? Why has nobody been so curious that they would say, how did this happen and go do the work? And this is the question for people on, I can't, I don't like the sides thing, but that's the easiest way to say it. On the other side of this equation, why, if you're going to outcast and condemn to hell, Kevin, and mm -hmm. the rest of the people I love because of who they love or who they're attracted to, wouldn't it be a Christ-like maneuver to make sure you got it right? Right. Mm, yeah, they didn't. So, so you, that you get it exactly right. So you're not screwing people over well slash you know causing trauma if you're supposed to be willing to die for another person 
you know, I would say that going and spending a week in the Yale archives is less uh, significant than dying. <laughs> yeah, you know, small potatoes in yeah, comparison. Right? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a tiny price to pay. And so we went to the Wheaton archives and I was actually kind of surprised what we found there. I thought I was going to find a more robust, more theologically sound, uh, in just something better. Yes. Something higher level on first Corinthians and Romans and Timothy. And I did not. They took the RSV for that version and they kind of just updated the RSV in a slightly more conservative manner. But whereas we found sheets of papers that were pouring over and struggling with words that I find rather insignificant, when it came to those passages, they just kind of went like, oh, yeah, this means homosexual. And then we also had the opportunity wow. to go check out, it's a much longer story, but it's of when I write it up, uh, people will be, imp- I hope they'll be moved of, like God is kind of in this work. We mm-hmm. went and we checked out the notes for the Living Bible because I've taught over the last five years, I've been teaching my book, which is Walking the Bridges Canyon over a, on a timeline, which has been a very successful way of communicating. So I can- and also just a very thrilling presentation. It's, I might it's fun, add. right. It's fun. And yeah. And, and the six hour ones, I even hear from people that don't like to sit still that they could have handled more time. I mean, I make it engaging. The information is like unheard altogether hooked together. Um, and sometimes I can even be funny. So it works. <laughs> and so, um, I, so we, we started looking at, um, as I've been teaching about the living Bible, I, when I get to it, I say, so the RSV used the word homosexual once and the living Bible uses it four times. It uses it in Leviticus, Romans, Timothy, and Corinthians. It uses in Leviticus. I didn't know that. I also have never, I don't think I've ever like, you know, homosexual, it goes right there and says homosexuality. Well, huh. I had been, I thought surely by the 60s, 67, he published it for the first time as the living letters. And then, you know, 71, it started, it, it got a bigger break. And that's a good story too, in the book, um, which I don't know what the name of the book is yet. I don't even, you know, I don't know anything about it, but I know I'm writing it. Um, <laughs> the guy that did the work, Kenneth Taylor, when I was teaching, I would kind of slam Kenneth Taylor. And I would say he upped it from one to four without any um, consideration, certainly consideration of what human sexuality is, but with not really solid Greek and Hebrew skills. I mean, and we checked that out and he didn't have solid Greek and Hebrew skills. Mm -hmm. And so um, so I kind of um, slapped that boy around a little bit until I found out the reality. Once again, he did not have any understanding of human sexuality. So you, so my job as a person that tries to look at these things in several letters, leather, levels from several disciplines is to say, what could someone have understood as they were doing this work? So here we have this guy who lived in Wheaton, Illinois, Kenneth Taylor, 
father of 10, commuting an hour each day by train, back and forth an hour um, each way. And he really, he just took up, he picked up the um, turn of the century version, the American standard version, and he translate, he paraphrased it. And his original intention was to give a Bible that uh, produce a Bible that he could read to his 10 children. Mm-hmm. Now, Wheaton, Illinois. Today, Wait, so real quick. You said he took the NASB, the Nash, the New American Standard no, he Version? The Living Bible, mm. which is a total paraphrase. So okay. he wanted to paraphrase an understandable version of the Bible for his children. So, so just think about it. So even today, a person cannot be in Wheaton and be outwardly, openly gay. Mm-hmm. So let's picture this in the 1960s. How isolated was he? He was in the bubble, working for Moody Press. And here he is day by day, taking two hours minimum a day and paraphrasing the Bible. And when he gets to this concept of, um, he, he reads, he, he reads other Bibles, but he's reading what he sees as sodomites from the American Standard Version. And he translates it in his day, that meant those people, the homosexuals, once again, without any academic research or mm. without any um, understanding of who gay people were. He could not have understood. He probably didn't even know somebody that was gay. So yeah, to him, it was just an abstraction. It, yes. So at one point, this is really funny, and I haven't written about this. I've been kind of hesitant to write about some of these things yet because I, until I write the full story, there's just too many questions and people saying, uh, she doesn't get it. I'm just, Kevin, you and I know if I'm going to, mm. if I'm going to put it in writing, yeah, it's been researched. There was one point at which Kenneth Taylor, we found this in the, the Wheaton archives. They had seven boxes of his work. Um, he took in an old Testament passage where they were talking about male prostitutes in one version of what he paraphrased into the into his version of the Bible, the Living Bible, he paraphrased male prostitutes as punks. Yes, P U N K S. Wow, that's now, not a that's <laughs> okay. So, nineteen sixties. I was a child, right? Okay, I know I don't look as darn old as I am. I am sixty two. I was no fucking way, really. Yes, and I was born in New York City. So I lived in the cities in the 60s. So um, my grandpa was a New York City cop. And the person he would call a punk was, so it was a very popular word. A punk was like the kid and and always male. Girls were Mm -hmm. not punks. Um, Of course not. uh, No. Um, a, A punk at the time was like the kid in the neighborhood who sat on the stoop and somehow somebody got him cigarettes. I don't know if he stole them or he took them from his mother or his poor grandmother, whoever he got the cigarettes. He was sitting on the stoop smoking. He rolled up his T-shirt. Sometimes he's rolled up his jeans. But he was kind of the good-for-nothing kid in the neighborhood. He wasn't really a bully. He was just the one that had nothing good to say about anything. And um, when the kids were playing stickball, he might have taken the bat away or hidden the ball. I mean, he was not a high-level criminal. He was just a neighborhood nuisance. Like Jerry, the grocery delivery boy, was a punk because he would hide under the stairs when he saw me coming and scream as I tried to walk up the stairs. He was a punk. 
Right. So, so just a generally unpleasant person. Just a nuisance. A nuisance. Mm-hmm. So when you see someone translate the a male prostitute into the colloquialism of the day, punk, and then but somewhere else. Totally different meanings. Translation, translated to homosexual, you say, hmm, not tons of understanding about human sexuality going on here. So the conclusion I have come to, which I am going to prove in a 17 so far chapter book, it's laid out, um, is as we have understood, did we go back and investigate? Well, certainly I can prove until 1978, we did not. So the Mm -hmm. question is, how did this happen? I am convinced that it was the merger of religion and politics that set this thing off into a spiral. Mm. And those groups, subsequent groups after that. So the, um, so the, the, the versions of the Bible that come after that, the ones that are written for the conservative market that um, enshrine the word homosexual in those translations, certainly by the 80s, the psychoanalytic, psychiatric, psychological community understood that homosexuality was just a variation on human sexuality, but that is not reflected in the academic work of Bible translators. Mm -hmm. They ignore what is known or growing body of knowledge about human sexuality, and they actually double down. And um, so it's those groups of people that um, can be really held accountable And to some degree, it won't be a popular message because for some people, because we want, they, the traditional people want to believe this has been enshrined in the Bible since, you know, Moses, 3,400 years, 2000 years ago, it's been enshrined in the Bible. No, this is a relatively new belief, a relatively new conversation. And in the first 30 years of this conversation, 40 years of this uh, conversation where human sexuality intersects faith, it was completely uninformed about human sexuality. So it's forgivable, but from the 80s on, when people could have had access to what the experts were saying, they Mm -hmm. lean into that. They ignored it. They doubled down. They went forward. So the last two days, what I've been reading, um, I invested the last two weeks before that. And what did the military say about homosexuality? Because the military, during this time of translation, um, dictated 20% of the jobs in America, right? So what they- 20%, wow. 20%, 20% of the workforce was associated with the military. And when- um, the military and the Congress says that we will not hire anyone that is homosexual or suspected of being homosexual and people that had contracts with the military, Department of Defense, State Department, they wouldn't hire you. That ended up being 20% of the jobs in America that were shut. The doors were shut to anyone that um, couldn't play the game or was Mm. honest. So I've spent a great deal of time looking at that because I have to understand the background. Where was the culture? What would the trans the translation scene team was not sitting on the top of Mount Ararat, Oming, right? They were, <laughs> they, were, they were living in the culture. 
So I've right. looked at that solidly and, oh my gosh, did I learn a ton of stuff there. But then in reading, I find another resource and it says that um, this journal, uh, Pastoral Psychology, started in the 1950s. So the question would be... Oh, like an actual like, magazine of like journal, Christian yeah, psychology. Journal, yeah, it started in the 1950s. So huh. the question associated that would be, okay, go into those journals you know, and, you know, when you've got a good academic institution near you, you can do that. So I have the University of Nevada, Reno. And so you go in and you say, what were pastors? And in this part, this is important, Kevin, progressive pastors that cared about what the experts were saying, right? Right. What did pastors, what information were they being told about who the homosexual is or what homosexuality is. And I printed out dozens of articles and spent time underlining them. And oh my goodness, what they were being told was um, so severely slanted and uninformed. And there was this guy named Edmund Bergler, who since the 30s had been such a destructive voice against uh, people, the word would have been homosexual, um, even by the time when he died, uh, the American Psychoanalytical Association even admitted that he was the most cruel member of their aso professional association in their history. Gosh. And he wrote a book about homosexuality. I think it was published in 1957. And this pastoral journal, this pastoral psychology, it was their book of the month. And oh, God. I was able to write three different articles in 57 and 58 to pastors with this unbelievably twisted um, message about who the homosexual was. I was reading some of it last night to my buddy Neto, and she was like, I can't believe people said this. And before he said it, he would say, I'm not biased on this topic. This is just the truth. Well, this was the voice going into progressive pastors' ears, eyes, mm. minds, Progressive pastors were reading these journals. So even progressive pastors were being um, misinformed. There were people that had a better idea, but they weren't heard. One of the, <clears throat> one of the main people that had a, certainly a better idea of um, the science of homosexuality or how it compares to heterosexuality was a woman named Evelyn Hooker. And she presented a paper in 1956 to the American Psychological Association and, you know, not a pin drop could be heard. A pin drop could be heard in that room. A thousand people attended. She pre presented the first academic research of having tested 30 homosexuals, 30 heterosexuals, equal status, equal education, you know, gave them these psychological tests, then mixed the papers up, handed them to the experts and said, give me the homosexuals. And they couldn't, which proved yeah. there was no pathology associated. Well, she was certainly the most uh, academic voice, certainly. She had actually done the research where nobody else had, but they didn't listen to her in 1956 because, ta-da, 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 she's a woman, right? Yeah. So they listened to these incredibly egregious, uninformed voices. So what a, what a mess. To so say the, the least. The, the government was anti-gay. The military was anti-gay. Um, the, as the shift was coming to the, um, 
the mental health professionals, homosexuality was not depathologized until 1973. So, and then, so the theologians are living in this world. The most progressive are getting this really slanted, horrible picture of who the homosexual is. You can't expect anything other than what we got in Bibles. Mm -hmm. Really can't. So it's really hard to look at those people and say, you know, that dirty so-and-so Kenneth Taylor, he did this. No, after having done that, even that research just a few weeks ago, my heart has softened in more gracious attitude towards um, Kenneth Taylor and what he was trying to do. So even that part of my teaching Mm-hmm. will change because it has to reflect the truth of what I found. But yeah. the truth of what I'm finding in the 1980s is going to be hard hitting. Right. Because they're the ones that married religion and politics. And Kevin, this would have been a hard sell four years ago to say to somebody, do you not understand the implications when conservative religion got in bed with conservative politics, how often that, how awful that nasty, dirty, whore-filled marriage is, like how polluted that marriage bed is. Mm -hmm. Four years ago, somebody could not have understood it. But now Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's an easy sell. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, hey, we have like, you know, nothing new is except for what has been forgotten. And honey. (laughs) So now we see that evangelicalism is tightly tied to a political party and uh, a desire to go back when the voices on the edge could not be heard. And that was exactly the period I'm studying when LGBT people were not looking at the Bible and saying, can we tell you what this means from our point of view? Can we tell you who God is from our point of view? Mm -hmm. Can we talk to you about Jesus from our point of view? That wasn't happening. And I can understand it, but I can also document it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think this is really fun to do. (laughs) I can tell because you've been going for like 30 minutes straight on this. Isn't that awful? I am sorry. No, I'm not. I love this. I'm literally sitting on the edge of my seat and my face is like, I know you can't see my face, but my face is saying, holy shit, this is big. This is big. My, my, one of my pastors says, um, it's, he says, it's like, this is gonna. This is the one that's gonna get you personally in trouble because they're oh, yeah. the linchpin that's been holding the entire thing together, and you're gonna pull it out with a question. It's, the question is just as we knew better, did we do better? You're just gonna pull it out and say, "Let's look at this thing," and mm-hmm. it's gonna fall apart. And yeah. um, I care about substantiating that with hard evidence. You mm-hmm. cannot stand in 2018 and look back at what people in 1940 might have thought about this or 1935, 1937, when they did the work. You can't make those assumptions. Mm-hmm. You have to go, you have to put yourself in the context. You have to um, see what they would have understood and immerse yourself in that and make the best academic assumptions and inferences you can as is true with when we look back at Romans, when we look back at Leviticus, when we look back at those audiences and contexts, we have to do that work. Mm -hmm. So that's the work I want to do because I care about communicating truth. And as I said to you, I hope, 
I hope I am, I hope I am true to the statement that if I write it, it is the best research that I can do. And whatever the truth tells me is what I will communicate as best I can. Yeah. I think that's something I really appreciate about your work is as much relationship as you have, like you have like a thriving relationship with the queer community. And on top of that, you were such a researcher, academic, somebody who approaches the conversation, not just from a relational point of view, but also with all the information and research that you have. And I think that's something that so many people take for granted um, is that like the, we, they kind of just want to like, they want a personal anecdote to be enough to convince somebody. And in many points, I wish that were enough because if, if some, if a teaching is causing suffering, I think that's enough for me to question it. Um, but for, you know, your average mom and pop or even someone um, like my uncle, who's a pastor in Calhoun, Kentucky, um, you know, you, he is the kind of person who I have to bring, you know, if I'm going to talk to him about this, I have to bring my research. I have to bring, uh, the academic side of things I have to bring, you know, I have to be on his level. And so I think like having a resource like this is so important because it allows people to do exactly that, not just bring their own story, but say like, Hey, like we have to understand like how these translations came about, how history and the development of our culture as a, as a country has led us to this understanding and how like, and then I'm just, I'm thinking even further than that because of like, Christian missionaries and how they've been sent out over the world that has proliferated this idea of what, of again, like you said, who and what the homosexual is mm-hmm. um, and how it's just kind of infected this whole world because colonialism and whatnot. So there's, there's a couple of interesting points in there that, um, so when you're talking to, I would, I would, I would want stories just to work. Yeah, it does. it's not true. I would want the statement that Jesus loves everybody, God loves everybody, we're all his children to work. Yeah, not true. We know that, right, Kevin? We know this. Yeah, of course. So, you know, you've got to find you've got to find the crack in somebody. Sometimes that crack develops because of relationships. So that crack is their child comes out. But the more entrenched you are in religion, you've got a couple of things working against you as a parent, as an uncle, as a family member, as a friend, as a pastor of. You've got what you believe the Bible says. So if you believe the, 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 the English words that you've been told the Bible says, and we are told that you have to put God as number one above all other relationships, mm-hmm. you can kind of understand Oh yeah. Parents would say, I've got a choice here. This is a, a, a little piece of eternity. I can either, um, like be in a straining, a stressed relationship with my child for the next 40 years, or I can serve God and please him for eternity. Like which one of those scales works in the minds of people. Right. God. And the next one is, I don't, you know, they'll say they people get, get challenged with, well, this is what the experts say. This is what science says. And then with the more fundamentalist someone is, the reality is, you know, you put that on the scale, you say science or the Bible, and they'll say, well, science must be the liar, or we haven't figured out how the Bible equates that yet. But when it comes between science and the Bible, we're going to pick the Bible. Right. Not understanding context or, um, 
the, the wonderful abilities that God has given us to listen to the people on the edges, to see something from a different point of view that maybe we haven't seen before, to read a verse that has always meant one thing, and now it means something completely different when you have more enlightenment. So the more work I do is I have a, it's a greater ability to take information in, and it's like this grid system is going on in my head and now even the tiniest piece of information, the smallest part of someone's story, it has a place where it lands in the filter in my brain or this grid system where I can file it and it's cushioned by other things around it, which gives it more meaning and more breadth and more richness because what I've got in that and you know, working around in my head from all of this research and stories is so many places to put something. So the tiniest thing that comes in, it's got a place where it lives in my head now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, 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 it's really hard sometimes to not just turn people off when they have another point of view. Right. I was there. I understand it because of the work I've done. I understand how they got there, but I'm finding myself less willing to play the games of, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what, um, you know, someone's trying to do it to me on Facebook right now. And someone tried to do me on Twitter yesterday. Like, and also know. people try to do that to you. just like walking around in public. Like I, I think I saw like a couple of weeks ago, someone was taking a picture of your bumper stickers. Yeah. 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 Yes. And then also like people on airplanes are just like, well, the Bible is this. Just freaking, but I'm just going for a hike. You know, you don't have to scream at me going out of the parking lot because my bumper stickers, you know, Jesus, it was original quality was originally his idea. But what I'm finding is I don't, the word is not really pushback. I can't find the word in my head, but I am less resistant to letting someone steamroll over me with tradition. Uh, Mm -hmm. My technique is very often asking a question. So we hear all the time, the power is in the question. Um, Because I can kind of hear what they're saying. And because I know the answers on the other side, just simple questions sometimes stops people in their track. Like, you know, you know, homosexuals are sick people. A simple question for me would be like, have you ever wondered why at one point in history, homosexuality was considered a mental illness and that that changed. Have you ever thought about that? Or, you know, just simple questions, not to say you're wrong, mm-hmm. but I'm finding I'm in, I'm less willing to invest with people that won't hear. Like they mm-hmm. just will not hear. Right. The people who just, are unable to just actually have a discussion, they want to be right. And they come back at you with, you know, they'll print out the Greek and here's the Greek. And I just want to say, like, on this topic, I get the Greek, I get the Hebrew. And beyond that, I like menu Greek is my best. And so I don't have to have studied all of Greek to understand these words in context. And um, so so I get out of those conversations faster. And mm-hmm. you got to know, and a lot of us associated being female, that I'm called weak and stupid and not willing to engage in the tough questions. No, 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 little boy. What I'm not mm. willing to do is waste my time. Come on. I'm not. So I live by this. 
If I don't, if you don't have an identity online, I may give you two exchanges. But beyond that, people devolve into uh, uncivil behavior. I won't go there. And um, and if you cannot hear, I. Uh, you may get two exchanges, but that's it. And I walk away and I, I cannot tell you, Kevin, how often I am told I'm stupid and afraid. I'm like, yeah. And you're like, honey, I wrote the damn book. (laughs) Someone even said to me once, if you care so much about this topic and you think you know so much, why don't you write a book? And you were like, I did. Here's my Amazon link, bitch. (laughs) So Kevin, when you came out, because I met you early in this process. Mm. Um, what was it that pushed you? Was it a combination of stories and academics or personal relationship? What was the trigger that pushed you that maybe I can be more sensitive to mm. as I write? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think by the time I came to Reformation Project, uh I was in a super tumultuous time. I had literally the week before had broken up with the woman that I was dating at the time. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Um, Cause I, we went on this, we went on this road trip together, met her family. And I was like, Oh my gosh, the entire time I was on this trip. And I was hoping that this was going to be the thing that was like, this is really going to cement our relationship. But the entire time I'm on this trip, I'm thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this. And but like I realized that on like day one, and we had seven day like seven days on this trip. I'm like, well, we're gonna tough it out. We're gonna do this. Um, and I, we get to the end of it. I, I we come back to Atlanta, and I break up with her, but I didn't tell her why. And then oh, like about a week later, I said, I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm not just struggling with <laughs> same sex attraction. I just think I'm gay, and I don't think it's going away. Um. And so uh, we tried to maintain a friendship after that. Um, you know, we just kind of, you know, naturally grew apart as one does. But that week, um, the week after, funny enough, somebody who I matched with on Tinder, a man who was also a Christian, uh, invited me to Reformation Project. And I didn't know it was a thing. No, come on. Dead serious. Wow. Dead serious. Wow. Um, and um, funny enough, he wasn't even out at the time. And so he didn't come to the rest of the conference. And um, But I went to this conference. And so I, by this point, I had like read like Justin Lee's essays on like side A versus side B on the GCN website. I had researched, I watched Matthew's videos. I had watched a ton of like coming out videos from different like YouTube people. Um, and it was just this thing for me where it's like, I feel like this is okay, but I just need some sort of, because like I understood like the basic uh, argument for inclusion. I understood um, uh, this, this, uh, a new way of understanding scripture like came from this idea that the more we know, like the more our experiences can drive us back to scripture for reinterpretation. Yes. Um, And the thing that really hit home for me when I finally knew it was gay was actually kind of, um, in a moment of worship, to be honest, it was yeah, at, I hear it was, you. Yep. it was the thing that really changed the game for me because for the first time in a, I'm in a room, I actually sat next to Shay Washington, yep. um, my first night at Reformation Project. And she was like, yeah, this is my wife. And I'm like, oh my gosh, or no fiance at the time. Now they're married. Right. But right. she was like, this is my fiance. I'm like, oh my God, you're both Christian and you're both lesbians and 
you are both like Christian and you're lesbians. And it was like this mind blowing thing. So it was like seeing it for the first time was the big thing. But I think for me, worship, like being in worship with other queer people and just like not having to filter myself at all. I, I felt something spiritual in, in my person and in my body that just like sealed it for me. Um, and then it was like, okay, now that I know like with my heart that this is okay, I need to, like, I, I had this sense that was like, I know that I'm going to have to like spend probably the rest of my life defending myself. So, um, you know, at the time there was, I think Gushy was, was teaching yeah. and Brownson, I don't think Brownson was there that time. Yeah, for, he was I think he was video that year. Yeah. So it was, it was starting there with, with like just this heart part of myself that says like, I want to be okay with this. Mm-hmm. And then, um, having the, the knowledge after that. Yeah. Um, I, I hear you about the worship part. When I went to the GCN conference in 2007, the very first night was worship and I stood at the back of the room and what struck me, um, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. was here were 200 people worshiping the same God I worshiped. And there was absolutely no denial that the Holy spirit was in that room. Come on. It was so overwhelming that I took my boots off mm-hmm. and I laid like uh, in a, in a, um, in a stretched out posed haunched on my, my legs in the room thinking, this is an absolute holy and sacred place. Mm-hmm. My brain doesn't get this at all. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with this in a conservative faith community, but oh my goodness, does my spirit and heart get this? And I have said over and over, if we could get people into just a worship service with the LGBT Christian community, it changes. Every, it'll change everything. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do the job you do, you did at that at the cohorts thing in particular, you did an incredible job of worship. Now, how could somebody look at you, Kevin, and say, yeah, he's not one of God's kids. He's not connecting with the spirit. Mm-hmm. This is all put on. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. To watch that team, just the team that there was there. Elisa, my dear honey, Elisa, was RV doing at that time too? I mean, what a team you had. Mm-hmm. How could anybody have looked at that and not imagined, and Laura Beth, I think, was on that team. Yeah. Um, how could anyone not imagine that these are not only God's children, but these these people absolutely adore God. And that can be seen in worship. Mm, I just got chills remembering that you in worship. So, but you know, how do we get them in the doors? You know, but it's just relationship, education, experiences. Mm. Um, I guess there's just lots of entryways for people. And if we all continue to do our work Mm -hmm. and to invite people into those places somewhere, as I said, there's going to be a little, there's going to be a tiny little crack where some something can seep into them. All I want when someone comes to my two hour or my one hour, reads my book, watches the stuff Mm -hmm. on YouTube. I just want them to do one thing to say, maybe I'm not right about everything. Not me. They Mm -hmm. say, maybe I'm not right about what I think. She might have something here to consider. I might be wrong. That's all. That's, that's the beginning Mm-hmm. That is that that's the tiny step I want from to so go from like A to A two, you know, mm-hmm. that's it. 
and then someone else will pick it up because honestly, you get yourself around a group of LGBTQ Christians and they are the most irresistible human beings on the planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think we're really fun. TBH. I, I, I have, oh gosh, how am I ever going to find a heterosexual husband if I can't <laughs> people? But um, I went to a, a birthday dinner several months ago and it was, it was all heterosexual couples and and after i had my margarita and chips and i had ordered my meal i was like i wanted to take it to go because it was so freaking boring i'm i mean i hate that. <laughs> Isn't that terrible that's just terrible but um there is just this beauty of um creativity and smartness and humor and mercy and grace and camaraderie in the LGBT community that is really irresistible. And for people that don't have that in their world, I don't know, um, like their, their, their life can't be as much fun as mine. I mean, yeah, most of the time I spend reading and researching, but when I'm with my gay friends, um, just there's just this level of everything that's pumped up and rich. So yeah, I I get to do it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am appreciative of your work and like I said at the top, just like your advocacy and just your ability to communicate all of this stuff that like can, like for so many people, like it can feel very overwhelming, but for you, like you just, the joy you have in it is so evident. Um, And I'm thankful and I'm excited for this new book. I want to ask one more question Um, in your wildest dreams. And I think you've actually said this to me before um, about like where we think the church, like big C church is headed. Um, But like with your new book, whenever it's finished and the, the the point of challenge is going to come to churches everywhere. um, What do you, what, what's your hope with it? What, What would you hope that kind of effect it has on the larger Christian community? Well, um, I think things are, it, it's not obvious, but I think things are rapidly changing in grassroots spots, perhaps not at the top, perhaps not in SBC quite so much, no. not in the gospel coalition, not in, you know, those kinds of places. Desiring God, etc. <laughs> Desiring God. Yeah. <laughs> that blog. I just want to, I just was like, why are you so obsessed with us? Can you please is go he, somewhere else? Like, is he drinking late at night? Is he's got no, doesn't he have a editor? I mean, he and the leader of this country, they, they need to get their Twitters under control. Honestly. But, oh but anyways. Goodness. So um, I think the questioning is coming from um, that movable middle and from grassroots parents, LGBT people, allies, and certainly from younger Christians. If the church doesn't get a grip on this one, they're going to be losing those younger Christians. So I think there is going to be a change. And uh, even the bigger churches, whether they admit this or not, are having these conversations behind the scenes. I I know this Mm -hmm. for a fact. Yeah, that's true. And they're, so they're having these conversations and I think it's just going to be a gradual shift. I cannot imagine that in 10 years, we will not reach at least some kind of balance 
where churches will be willing to engage this with authenticity and um, integrity. Um, there will always be those strongholds that, you know, the ones that don't even let women say the word amen in church because women shouldn't speak in churches. I've actually been in a place like that. Really? Uh, I visited a church like that, that mm. once the service started, women couldn't even say amen. And so, um, you know, it's all, it's all part of research, honey. It's all part of research. I wasn't trying to find a man there, although there were a lot of <laughs> men there. Um, and some of them with guns on their hips. What a, what a turn on. Wow. Wow. So, um, so, but I think within 10 years, enough people will be willing to make pastors, staffs will be willing to make this change because the overwhelming evidence of resources, the lives of LGBTQ Christians will speak loudly to them. I mm -hmm. am in a church in Nevada where three years ago it was not affirming. And then two of the pastor's sons came out in this valley in the period of two or three months, five pastor's sons come out. Oh, you know? yeah. So there's a joke that I've heard. That's like, how do you make sure that you get a, a gay child? Like you just become a evangelical or Baptist minister. <laughs> yeah. And, right. So um, the, several of those husband and wives banded together in a monthly bi-monthly conversation. Like, how do we deal with this? We're leaders of our churches. Well, two of these pastors ended up at the same church and quietly behind the scenes, they started investigating this. And two years ago, I went over there. I started going over there too and helping them with teaching and just helping them with objections and teaching and teaching out, out, out. And it's a fully affirming church. I would never say it's a gay church. It's just a church. Mm -hmm. We have gay people on the board. We have gay people visibly serving. Gay mm -hmm. people that are getting baptized as couples on the stage. Oh, shoot. Led by evangelical straight pastors. So this will be happening. I know this is happening in other places. It will be happening. But the tough question for pastors is, if I make this switch, I lose the money. My staff needs to be laid off. I lose the building. <clears throat> it's not just a moral, ethical, religious decision. It's a financial decision. And oh, yeah. I get that. But 10 years, I think, will be um, significantly further. I mean, the tipping point, they say, is 16 to 20% of people getting it. And so we're there. It, it, it's, this, is not, this is not going backwards. Not going backwards, honey. Yeah. Going backwards. Yeah. Agreed. That was my conversation with my friend, Kathy Baldwin. You can connect with Kathy across social media at Canyon Walker, and that's the word Canyon, and then Walker, W-L-K-R, just no vowels, and then at her website, CanyonWalkerConnections.com. Kathy, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I love this. I cannot wait for your next book. It's going to be phenomenal. I, I seriously cannot wait. A Tiny Revolution is made possible by 124 amazing folks on Patreon. Thank you so much for y'all's support. It's just been amazing to see how many people have like stayed and are continuing to come to become part of creating more queer Christian content. So I just want to say thank you for creating the things um, 
with me. Um, if you don't know what Patreon is, it's a crowdsourcing platform that allows you, the listener, to become a part of the creative process and um, support the creatives in your life that are making the content that matters. So if you thought that this podcast was good, enlightening, illuminating, um, life-giving in any way, you should become a Patreon supporter. That way I can actually pay my bills and I'm not just producing this for free. Because sometimes there's so many creatives out there who are producing content for free, life-changing content, and they're not getting the recognition they deserve. So make sure that you're supporting the people that you are consuming, BB. This is America. It is a hard little economy right now. And Lord knows we're trying to, you know, we just want to make it. We just want to make it through. So go over to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia. Become a Patreon supporter today and learn about the sweet perks that are associated with it. I'm getting ready to gear up to start uh, sending out t-shirts for this quarter. So if you're a Patreon supporter at $15 a month or more, you're going to be getting a sick t-shirt. So you in? Do you want a sick t-shirt? Do you want something from queerlybeloved.com? Um, it's not a website yet, but it will be, so just wait for it. Um, but yeah, it's there's a whole lot of really great perks. I'm going to stop talking about that. You already know what Patreon is. You know the deal. If you've been listening for a while and you haven't been giving, consider this me talking directly to you. You got a couple bucks a month to spare, honey. So this shit ain't free. Go support it. I love you. Let's keep rolling. You can connect with me across social media at the Kevin Garcia and at thekevingarcia.com. Be sure to sign up for my newsletter so you never miss a beat of the shit that's going on in my life. And on top of that, if you want to help support the show, an easy way to do that is to leave us a rating. It's an easy way to just help out the show and also get this podcast in the ears of people who need to hear it. So I think that's everything from me. You're a beautiful, wonderful child of God. So remember to take your meds, go see your therapist, take a nap, call your BFF, catch up with them. You you know, it's been a while. Eat a taco, dance like nobody's watching, especially when people are watching, because when they see how free that you are, they can see how free they can be. You're giving them permission to get more free by dancing like an idiot, like I do anytime I'm on the dance floor. Um, I'm done talking to you now. I love you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Tiny Revolution. My name is Kevin Garcia, and I'll talk to you soon, Hanny. Bye.